Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Central, and we follow that with a talk about money. Oops. <laughs> Hope your enthusiasm uh, for, uh, for what we'll do moving forward here will be as uh, great as the enthusiasm for the song. If you're a guest of us, welcome to Central. My name is Craig, and it's my privilege to continue our series Hopeful with a message entitled Hope for uh, Finances. Now, let me tell you, if it is your first time at Central, this is probably the first time in three years I've talked about money. So we don't do this all the time. We just do it when you're here. No. Um, no, we are doing a series on hope and uh, just examining those things that often lead us into fear into a desperation, and we just want to open up God's Word and say, look, it doesn't matter what situation you're in, even financially, there is hope because God's Word is true. Now, um, let me also say this, good news, the offering has already happened, right? So, good news too, it's not a Waters Edge Sunday, there isn't going to be a second offering. In other words, you can honestly relax, okay? I'm not talking about your giving to the church, amen to that? Amen. Okay, some of you are happy. Um, what I'm going to do, though, is I'm going to talk about a passage in Acts chapter 4. If you've got a Bible, turn to Acts chapter 4. And I'm going to talk about a passage that does talk about giving uh, because that's what the, the passage addresses. But honestly, it isn't talking, this passage, about the, the regular repeated practice we have here of what we would call tithing, that regular giving that we would do week in and week out. This passage actually talks about what we would call over and above giving, okay? Special type of giving. And I'm using this passage because it actually talks about the attitude that we need to have towards our money that leads us to be hopeful. So that's the, that's the context for this. Now, Kim, I am pushing my uh, button here, and there is nothing moving, so I'm going to be here for six hours, and I really don't want to do that. So if you can just actually help me, but there you go. Okay. I want to get you guys uh, through this. Sometimes th this will happen. So when you look at Acts chapter 4, okay, we're going to look at verse 32 through 37. It's almost like a summary passage that it's really easy to skip over. It feels very much like Acts 2. If you're familiar with Acts, where everybody was together in one heart and mind, but now we get to Acts 4, and it's the same type of passage. But this is a really important passage, because it introduces attitudes that were at the heart of what God was doing in and through the church, and it also introduces us to a person who would become very important for the rest of the ministry of the church. So Acts 2, uh, from verse 32 through the end of the chapter, and there are really two principles that I want us to focus on. And the first principle is this. If we need and we want to find hope for our finances, we have to develop a spiritual perspective on money. Here's why. Because if we develop a spiritual perspective on money, we will know no matter what our state, God's got this. If we develop a spiritual state in our finances, no matter what is happening with our job, with our nation, we can know deeply within our soul, God's got this, because God's got me. That's that spiritual perspective on our money. Let's have a look at the text, Acts 4 from verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind, no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, 
But they shared everything that they had. And with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Stop there just for a second. With great power, the apostles continued to testify about the Lord Jesus and to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Really interesting. We've got a text here that's talking about money, and it introduces in verse 33 something that seems to have nothing to do with money, the the preaching of the church. But actually, what this is, verse, uh, th- this verse, it's the foundation for the church's attitude towards finance. In other words, what we see is that the early church grounded everything they did, included their giving in the mission of God in the world. Everything, including their giving, was connected to the truth that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. And what that tells us is that this is the basis for their unity. There's a wonderful phrase here. It says, all the believers were in one heart and mind. The Greek is kardiakai psychemia. It's one of those phrases that I've, I've memorized. Kardiakai, cardio, you'll be familiar with that from cardiac, okay, talks about the heart, psyche, talks about the mind. They were of one heart and mind. How do we know this? And what was the basis for it? The basis for this oneness was the mission of Christ in the church. Here's the thing. If you prioritize the mission of God in the world, God will take care of you financially. Because they prioritized the mission of Christ in the world, That united them. That was the basis of their unity. God took care of his church, including those in the church who had very little. I've got to be of one heart and mind, not only with God's people, but with God, and recognize that my purpose in the world is for the purpose of Christ. That's the foundation. And then we go on to the next part, and it says this. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. Their unity is spiritual, just as their mission is spiritual, And the implication that we're given is that God takes care of the church whose focus is on his mission. Now, then we read, God's grace was so powerfully at work, where? In the world? In them. Let me ask you a question. How did they know that? How do you know that God's grace is at work powerfully in you? How do you know that God's grace is at work so powerfully? Notice the qualifier. Not just powerfully, incredibly powerfully in someone else. How do we know what's going on in someone's heart? How do we know? The answer is we know what is going on in someone's heart by what comes out. Behavior is always driven by what's happening in our hearts. So the early church, they prioritized the mission of Christ in the world. They continued to testify to the resurrection of Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them. Here's the proof. There were no needy persons among them. What was all going on on the inside was coming out in the way that they responded to needs within their own church. 
Now, some of the needs that were there, we know were there because of famine and hardship, but some of the needs that were there, especially in Acts chapter 2, was driven by the radical, unexpected, incredible expansion of the church. From 120 frightened people in the upper room, all of a sudden, the church is thousands strong. And guess what? Many of those believers came from Crete. They came from all these different kind of places, and they found faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they stayed in Jerusalem to be discipled before going home. That's how the church in Crete, for example, started, which is where we get the pastoral letter of Paul to Titus. Some of the needs that were there were caused by hardship. Some of the needs that were there were actually caused by the incredible explosion of the church and just recognizing, wait, we've got thousands of people who have got nowhere to stay. They couldn't just go to the Holiday Inn Express. Where are they going to stay? The early church opened up their doors. They opened up their homes. And then they started to, we're going to read here, sell property. And they started to sell property, brought it to the apostles' feet. I would love to be able to talk about that. What does it mean to bring the money to the apostles' feet? It talks about one fund idea in the church, trusting the church with money, because the church was focused on the mission of Christ in the world. Why are there so many parachurch ministries in the world? Because the church failed to do what the church was called to do. That's why. But here we see need. And the evidence of the grace of God so powerfully at work in the church was what was coming out. What was coming out was radical, incredible generosity that testified to their unity in the mission of Christ in the world. How do we know what's going on in our hearts? The answer is by what comes out. How many of you, like me, have ever walked into a room and seen your, your kids arguing, and somebody says something or does something that's wholly inappropriate, and you look at them, and what do you say? Hey, that wasn't right. Say sorry, right? Sorry. Get that too? And then you say, hey, wait a minute, that attitude isn't quite the right attitude. Do you want to do it again and mean it? Sorry. No, you still didn't get it, buddy. Sorry. You quickly realize you can't, right? Make someone do something with integrity. It's going to be important in a second when we get into Acts 5. When the heart isn't in it. And it's really interesting, despite the fact that there are thousands and thousands of verses in the Bible on money, this is one of the hardest things for us to get our heart right with. And what we discover in the early church is that they had their heart right when it comes to money. How? Because what was going on on the inside was demonstrated by what they were doing on the outside with their money. And and what drove this? What drove this was a simple principle. They believed that God owns it all. Not only that He owns it all, He has it all. That's where hope for our finances comes from. It comes from a heart that truly believes God's got this. God's got this. No matter what state we're in, whether we're very comfortable, whether we're living with surplus, whether we're living with little, God's got this. God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that it came out. Why? Because they believed that God owned it all. God owned it all. 
Now, let's have a look at how this works. God owns it all. How does, it, how does that work? God owns it all and he's given it to me. Have a look at verse 32 again. We know that there was basically radical generosity and God's grace was powerfully at work in them because there were no needy persons among them. How does that work? This verse here. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. Wow. Now, wait a minute. I don't like that verse very much. No one claimed any of their possessions was their own. Now, when I read a statement like that, I ask myself, okay, whose was it then? Right? And, and then I kind of go into the Greek a little bit, and I say, okay, is that really what it means? The Bible's written in the Greek language, right? And you translate it into English in different languages. And I actually discover when I look at this that the Greek here, no one claimed, right, any of their possessions as, as their own, is actually an understatement. The Greek literally says, not even one of them <laughs> claimed any of their possessions as their own. So it's not that no one, in a general thing, not even one of them claimed any of their possessions as their own. Oh, so the Bible does mean it when it said that they didn't claim their possessions. So then I asked myself that question, okay, if they didn't belong to the people who owned them, then who did it belong to? Now, what do you, when you ask a question like that, the answer in church is always what? Jesus, right? But at the time, it wasn't that simple. Because there was a community called the Qumran community, okay? They were a, a private community that you could almost uh, kind of, that you could get involved with. But in getting involved with them, you'd have to sell all of your property and you'd actually bring it into the common pool. Right? So this kind of idea of who claimed it is actually really important when, for commentators to dig in and to understand, okay, how did this actually work in the early church? Because a number of people have looked at this and tried to do the same thing. They've devised community living. We see that with monks. We see that with nuns. You sell property and you, you basically move into a community. We see it with communism. This idea that if everybody kind of sacrificed a lot, then the whole would be better off. So no one claimed any of their possessions was their own. So was it that the church owned it? And the answer is no. When you read the book of Acts, that's not what's going on here. No one claimed their possessions was their own, but what we discover when we look at the rest of Acts is sacrificial giving. This type of giving that was demonstrated was voluntary, not compulsory. They weren't coerced into doing it. They weren't forced to do this. This wasn't, if you want to come and belong to us, then you need to sell everything and bring it here so that we can control it. No, it was voluntary. So no one claimed any of their possessions to be their own, even though they recognized that they were responsible for how they used it. Now, to see this, we can go into the very next chapter, Acts chapter 5. And in Acts chapter 5, we have the example of Ananias and Sapphira, who owned some property, sold some property, but Ananias decided to keep back some of the proceeds from the sale of the field for himself and gave the rest. God wasn't happy about this, and this is what we read in verse 4. Didn't it, the field, okay, belong to you before it was sold? 
See, this idea that we can be coerced into this kind of giving by an organization, by a church, by any other institution is not what the Bible says. Peter here says, didn't it belong to you? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? The word disposal here is exousia, which is basically authority. Wasn't the money under your authority? And then, what on earth made you think of doing such a thing? So, wait a minute here. We've got this idea in Acts 4 that no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. But giving is clearly voluntary because our possessions belong to us. So let's ask this question again. Who does it belong to then? It's not the church. It belongs to God himself. The second point here is that really proves this is as you go through the rest of the book of Acts, you realize that private ownership still continued. The apostles continued to travel around and they would go into the homes of believers who were wealthy. In Colossians, for example, the church used to meet in a wealthy man's house who had a number of people working for him and living with him. He wasn't coerced into selling it. Private ownership continued. And in fact, Paul even writes to Timothy to make sure that he encourages people to enjoy the wealth that God has given them. So we start to see when it comes to giving then, this type of giving, the attitude on money, it isn't, we aren't coerced into doing certain things with them. Private ownership is still there. But there's an attitude we have to it that really changes everything. What we discover is that what we possess is claimed by God, Acts 4, but it belongs to us. And our sacrificial giving is voluntary, not compulsory, and private ownership still continues. Now, the third part here, then, how does this work? Something is claimed by God, but it belongs to me, and there are times when I need to do something with it. What, what, what am I supposed to do? Throughout history, the church has usually sent a, set a kind of benchmark. Typically, that's been in many places tithing. Now, in the Old Testament, tithing was between 23 and 27%. And we balk at 10. But the idea here for many people is then developed into the fact that if I kind of give my 10%, my tithe, my first, then I'm off the hook. That's not what goes on in the church either. What we discover in this passage and in the entire New Testament is when it comes to finance and to giving and our response to our wealth is our only obligation is obedience. Our only obligation is obedience. Look at what Peter asks Ananias. What made you do such a thing? What earth made you do such a thing? Now, let's make sure we understand what happened here. What did Ananias do? He sold a field but held some of the proceeds back. Now, some commentators argue that he must have pledged the proceeds to the church And what happened to him, you remember that he was judged immediately and severely and he died. Some commentators say that in order to understand this, we need to recognize that he must have made a pledge to the church and then the judgment on him was the penalty for not honoring the pledge. 
For those of you who've made a pledge to stronger and circumstances have changed and you haven't been able to give it, let me tell you, I don't agree with that commentator. You could breathe easy. I don't believe we're actually told that. That's reading into the text. We're not told that. We aren't told specifically, that specifically, about what happened. We, we simply don't know. But what we are told is that Ananias hadn't lied to humans, to the church. He'd actually lied to God. He deceived God. And the implication of this is very simple. The Holy Spirit led them to do something, and they did it part way. They did it part way. How much they gave, we don't know. How much they held back, we don't know. What we do know is this. Peter's words make it very plain. The only obligation Ananias and Sapphira had was to be obedient to what God had said. The only obligation was obedience. Think about this. Their, their giving wasn't coerced. Wasn't the field yours before you sold it? And even after you did, wasn't the money yours? We know the private ownership continued. They were under no obligation to do this. It wasn't compulsory at all. But Peter looks at them and says, the only obligation you were under was to do what God said. Let me tell you this. If you want hope for your finances, you need to get to the point of realizing the only thing that matters is being obedient to what God has said I'm to do with my money. That's it. Now, the question is, what has God said you're supposed to do with the money? Many of us don't know that. Now, here's the, the challenge, right? The people judged the most severely in acts, indeed, even in the early church. Make no mistake about it, they gave generously. The implication here is they gave generously, and yet they're judged. Why? I think it's because out of fear, they prioritized security over sacrifice. They believed that their margin mattered more than their obedience. That, that's the challenge here. The margin mattered more than their obedience. Now, please don't misunderstand me. Margin matters. But if we limit our obedience in our finances to what is comfortable for us, we are more bound than we think we are, no matter how much money we have. That's not hope. That's fear. Hope opens hands, remember? Fear makes fists. Fear holds on. Now, in order to see that this is the intention of the text, we can go back to chapter 4, and let's have a look at this guy called Joseph, Barnabas. Because in Acts 4, this guy is introduced in a way that is rather surprising. And the question is, why is he there? We read Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Here's the question, why is Barnabas highlighted? No one, not even one of them, claimed their possessions as their own. And yet Barnabas is highlighted, why? I believe that Barnabas is singled out not necessarily because he gave more than other people, but because of the role he's going to play in the rest of the story. 
See, Barnabas' role in the rest of the story reveals him to be a man of influence. He appears in the rest of Acts as a man who's willing to invest both his time and his treasures in the things that were important to God. You show me a person who invests their time and their treasures into the things that are important to God, and I will show you a man or a woman of influence. That's why Barnabas is highlighted. He's highlighted here because of the role he's going to play, the influential role in the rest of the story. The next time we really um, deal with Barnabas is Acts chapter 9. God has worked through the church. The church is growing. The church is spreading. And now this guy, Saul, who persecuted the church, had apparently come to faith in Christ, and he made the journey to Jerusalem to meet the disciples. And in verse 26 of Acts chapter 9, we read that the disciples were too afraid to meet with him. But in verse 27, we read the words, but Barnabas. There he is again, Barnabas. What did he do? Barnabas made time to go and meet with Paul and discover that Paul's conversion was truly genuine. Barnabas is a person who had margin not only with his treasures, but also with his time. He recognized that margin is relational. It is seasonal. Margin isn't rigid. Margin isn't fixed. Margin isn't a line that you never to cross over. Margin is relational. And when God told Barnabas, go and meet Saul because my leaders of the church won't, he went. He made time to do it. And guess what? Barnabas introduced Saul to the church. And then in Acts 13, the Holy Spirit, we are told, speaks in verse 2 and says, separate Saul, Paul, and Barnabas for me. Barnabas is shown as a man who prioritized the mission of Christ to such a degree that it impacted how he used his time, whom he met with, and even where he was willing to go. Barnabas is introduced to us as a man with margin. Margin matters, but margin isn't fixed. Margin is relational. Margin is seasonal. Margin is driven by what is God saying. And when God says to Barnabas, make time to meet with Paul, he met with Paul. Barnabas didn't have more than 24 hours in a day. There were only 24 hours in a day, but he made use of the time that he was given as directed by what God said. In the same way then, the margin that Barnabas lived with financially was not a fixed line. It was not a static line. It was relational. And when God said to Barnabas, sell and give, Barnabas sold and gived because that's the kind of guy that he was. You, you see, the lesson here is that prioritizing margin over obedience leads to a different kind of bondage. And guys, those of us who have worked our way up from paycheck to paycheck kind of living, through hard work but through God's favor, this is the biggest danger that we have with obedience and hope for our finances. Because we can believe foolishly that success in this world is driven by how much we have in the bank, how much margin we have. And friends, that doesn't lead to hope, that doesn't lead to freedom, that leads to bondage of a different kind. 
Now, any of you involved in Celebrate Recovery, of course, you're familiar with this type of language because in a recovery ministry, you recognize this. And the lesson came home to me about a year ago. I kind of stepped on the scale one morning, foolishly, right? And I saw that I was 188 pounds. Now, that may not seem a lot to you, but to me it was. I'm usually 174. And I made an even bigger mistake than stepping on the scale. I told my wife. And so I went to Vipka and I said, Han, I'm 188. I used to be a size 32. Pants, now I'm a size 34. She said, you know why? And I'm like, ice cream? She said, yeah, and a couple of other things. If you want to really deal with that, this is what you need to do. Watch what you're eating. Get in some exercise. Watch when you're eating. You need to start doing these things. So I started to alter this. And guess what? I got back down to my 174. But there's something I discovered in this. See, uh, part of my ice cream at night is a part of a comfort thing, and, and it's a bondage that I had, right? It's a comfort food. It, it's, a, it's a mental comfort thing. And so I replaced that with this healthier regime, but I discovered I would do something every day. I discovered that I would basically get up every morning and I would go on the scale and see if I was less than I was the day before. Any of you following me? And I also discovered that I downloaded an app on my phone that would basically tell me uh, the, the kind of calories of everything that I was eating. I would do this every day, every meal. And before I would eat something, I would actually go and look at what the calories were. And then I was in Seattle one night, and somebody made this statement, often when we're on the road to freedom from addiction, freedom to bondage to something, we replace one form of bondage that is evident to the world with another form of bondage that is only evident to us. You are following me. And then I realized true freedom in my life had nothing to do with a calorie count or a scale, but had to do with an inner drive on the inside where I was being obedient to what the Holy Spirit said. Friends, it is possible when we're working our way out of financial difficulty for us to replace one type of bondage, a bondage to debt, a bondage to overspending what we have, with another type of bondage, which is basically margin matters most. That isn't financial freedom. That isn't financial hope. Margin matters. Margin matters. Margin is important, but in the early church, margin mattered less than obedience. They said, God, what do you want? to do with the wealth that you have given me? What do you want to do with the time that you have given me? They had a spiritual perspective on money. This is one of the greatest scriptures, I think, on that. It's First Chronicles. A brilliant scripture basically says this, yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth are yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted over all. Doesn't it sound like the beginning of the Lord's prayer? And then it says this, wealth and honor come from where? Where do wealth and honor come from? It doesn't come from our hard work, folks. We had no choice in where we were born. We had no choice in where we were educated. We had no choice in this at all. But for some reason, God has placed us here rather than in, in India. I was in India on a mission trip one time. I was walking down the street and out of this, this tube in Mumbai, there walked a boy. We took the photograph and I look at that constantly when I think that I don't have enough. 
that I need more. We had no choice in this. Where does wealth come from? Wealth comes from God. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Church, those in our fellowship, those in our church who are feeling financially hopeless, they get to experience hope when they know that those of us who have margin are more committed to obeying what God says with our money than to living true to our margin. And why do we do it? Cardia kai psyche mia, because we are of one heart and mind that the mission of Jesus matters more than everything, including our margin. And when we accept God's claim on our money, even though it abides with us, when we prioritize obedience above everything else, including our margin, we get to experience hope, and others get to experience hope as well. So where do we find freedom and hope financially? We find it when we commit to live by the truth that God owns it all, and our only obligation is to obey what God has said. And that leads to the second point in this text. Once we get to that heart decision, then we need to work it out practically because what goes on on the inside has to come out. Then we need to see every spending decision as a spiritual decision. Every spending decision is a spiritual decision. Acts 4, again, says this. I love this. No needy persons amongst them, right? Okay, how did that work then? We know it was an obligation. It was just as the Lord led. How does this work practically? And here we have a phrase in here, for from time to time. That's how it worked. There were no needy people amongst them because from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to everyone who had need. Now, how many of you are not reading the NIV translation here? Any of you not reading the NIV? You'll notice if you're not reading the NIV that the phrase from time to time is not in the text. But the NIV translators were so convinced that this was important from the Greek that they added it to help us understand how this happened. And basically, the reason for the inclusion of the phrase time to time is this. As you look at that text, there are basically five verbs in there. Okay, there are five verbs that are used in what is called the imperfect tense. Five verbs are belong, brought, placed, distributed, and yet had, had need. That's the idea. So there are five verbs in the imperfect tense. The imperfect tense describes something that happened in the past that continued into the present. Okay? And basically, this tense lets us know that this isn't something that happened once. It happened regularly. But it isn't something that happened legalistically, legislatively, it happened as God led. As God led. Whenever there was a need, people who owned land or had other available assets asked themselves what God wanted to do with this resource in the light of this need. And get this, on some occasions, some within the church responded to this need. On other occasions, others within the church responded to this need. But there wasn't the requirement that everybody responded to this need all of the time. From time to time. That's the implication of Acts 4. 
and Acts 5. Now, do we think this is an easy process? How many of you find it easy to discern whether you should spend, invest, or give? Is that an easy decision? It's not an easy decision. James, in his letter to business leaders, basically says, look, you have all the hallmarks of a good plan. You say today or tomorrow, we will go to this city or that city, and we will do this. Is that a bad thing? That's not a bad thing. Make a plan. But he says, I have this against you. You have not said, does the Lord will? Does the Lord will? Here we have business leaders making money in the church. That's not wrong. What's wrong, James says, is none of you asks God. I honestly believe that spending, investing, and giving are complicated. They're difficult because they're relational and seasonal. They're not rigid and compulsory decisions. That's what makes it so hard. Guys, what do we really need? Some people will quote Paul, if I have food and clothes, I will be content with that. Contentment. Is contentment rigid? Is necessity rigid? Is it true that the only thing that you need in life is food and clothes? No. It's not a rigid line. It's a relational line. Throughout my life, I've realized that some of the things that become necessary change as my circumstances change. When Vipka and I were single, a buggy wasn't necessary. A cot wasn't necessary. When we decided to have kids, three of them very quickly, a double buggy was considered foolish by many of our Brits. They looked at me and my wife and said, don't you have a television at home? Why are you making so many kids? Seriously, that's what they said. <laughs> I discovered that as I grew and as my family grew, my small 700 square feet home in London that cost me an arm and a leg wasn't a luxury anymore. It was a necessity. We had bedrooms. Seriously, London is so crowded that we could just go like this. That's the size of a bedroom, and it costs hundreds of thousands. Is it easy for us to discern what we should do with our money? No, because investing, spending, giving happens from time to time. It changes some of you have moved into Holland maybe from a big city, maybe Chicago, New York, and, and you don't need a car over there. My daughter lived in Chicago for a while, and she didn't need a car. She sold it before she went there. A car in Chicago was a luxury. Now she lives in Jacksonville, Florida. There is no public transportation. A car for her to live is a necessity. It's seasonal. It's relational. That means that the decisions we make with our money are not easy. We need God's help. What do we need then? We need wisdom. If there's going to be hope for our finances, we need wisdom. James chapter 1 and verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. I love that, without finding fault. He's not going to blame you for the decisions you make. 
I honestly believe this, that the miracle of Acts 4 is not simply that no one had need. I believe the miracle of Acts 4 is that through spiritual discernment, the exact amount that was needed came in on time, every time, from time to time. The hope for those in crisis, even in our own community, is that we are willing to go before God every time and say, God, what do you want me to do with yours that you claim that belongs to me? And if we all do that, if we're all cardiac, kai, psyche, me, if we're all of one heart and mind, then guess what? There will be no needy amongst us. God will be honored in His church. But we need wisdom for that. And from time to time, God will ask some of us to step up. And other points in time, He'll ask others to step up. And there's not a problem about who, because God owns it all and controls it all. Secondly, though, we, we have to have priorities if we're going to live like this. Because the truth is, in order to live like this, the principle of stewardship precedes the principle of faith. Let me put it simply. You cannot act in faith with something that you don't have. You cannot give in faith something that doesn't belong to you. This is why margin does matter. How can you give what you don't have? Put it on your credit card, and then all of a sudden the interest is working against you, not for you. See, we basically need priorities. What is important? Now, when it comes to money, essentially, there are, according to Ron Blue, National Christian Foundation, number of others, but I find Ron Blue's um, summary here the best. When it comes to our money, there is essentially only five things that we can do with it. There's only five things that we can do. First, we live by it. And if we're going to live with our finances in, according to what God has said, then essentially we need to practice contentment. We need to provide. We need to take enjoyment because money is a tool. God has created all things for our enjoyment, given us all things for our enjoyment. We, we, need to, we, we live with it. Secondly, we give with it. We open a hand to release God's resources. Why? Because God owns it all. It's all His. And we recognize that He has given me both time and treasures to invest in His kingdom in the world. It all comes from Him and goes back to Him to give glory to Him. So we live, we give, we owe. Some of us owe debts on credit cards. The interest is working against us. One of the first principles here is set priorities to eradicate this. Next one, we owe. We owe taxes. Matthew 22, Jesus paid the temple tax, rather supernatural way, but Jesus paid his taxes. And when asked uh, whether he should later on, he kind of conveniently said, give to Caesar what's Caesar's and to God what's God's. Well, we have a responsibility to pay our taxes. So we live, we give, we owe, we owe, and we grow. It's pretty easy to remember, right? 
We set priorities, and we can only do these five things with it. By grow, uh, Ron Blue actually includes saving in that too. Basically, it's the whole idea of setting priorities for what God wants to do in our life long term, and we actually make sure that we use our money, which can only be used on those five things. You're not going to get any more than that. So every time you invest in one of those areas, you're impacting on someone else until you get to a point of being able to get this give out of your wealth. That's what many people in here are striving for. Many of you will do this. You give out of your wealth. Why? Because you practice these principles from young. Listen to me. Those of you who are young, those of you who are newly married, we have a course in here, Financial Peace University, that will teach you all of these principles. The earlier you practice these principles, the more freedom and hope you have with your finances. And so after this service, outside there is going to be a table There are going to be some of our leaders who who run this ministry there. We encourage you with all of our hearts. This is the best gift that we can give to you for financial freedom. Is to basically say, go sign up. Now, this course costs $99. They want you to have to buy in with it. But if the money is the reason why you can't do it, we will pay for it. Do you know why? Because there will be a return in the kingdom if you live by this. Guys, don't start your married life Students, don't get your first paycheck with understanding how this works. But we have to make priorities. And and if we get to that point, then this scripture, I love this scripture from Paul, 2 Corinthians 9, will be our experience over and over again. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. You see it? For God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, what do you need? That's going to be seasonal. It's going to be relational. It's not going to be static. It's not going to be rigid. Guess what? This Christian faith isn't a religion with do's and don'ts. It's a relationship where you ask, God gives. You need, God provides. So that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Let me sum this up. If you're here and you don't know what the Bible says about money and handling it practically, please, next week we're starting Financial Peace University. This is probably the best gift that we can give to you. Go out of this door, sign up. If the money's an issue, we will pay for it because it's worth it for you and it's worth it for the kingdom of God. But secondly, I think for those of us who through hard work, through applying biblical principles, have managed to get to the point where we can say, you know what, I'm comfortable. I've applied some of these principles, and I've got a little bit of a, you know, a a saving fund there. I've got a little bit of a security there if something were to happen. I've kind of built up on my HSA a little bit, and and I've actually, some of us, I've got more than that. I've got to the point of surplus. I've got to the fact when I'm even able to give out of my wealth and it doesn't cost me, I want to offer us a challenge too. A little while ago, I was at home again with my kids, and and one of them turned to one of their siblings who was playing with a toy that had been given to them, and uh, basically said, hey, put it down, it's mine. You familiar with that? Sibling, it's mine. 
What do you think I did as a dad? I kind of looked at that as a dad, and I challenged attitude, not ownership, right? And in a sense, a lot of the teaching on finances, that's what we do. We challenge our attitude to wealth, not the ownership side of it. And as I was preparing for this message, I said, God, give me an example that I can just share with people that illustrates this principle that, that you own it all. And into my heart, into my mind, came that moment where I stood at the front of the church in Germany with Jordan as a baby, with the associate pastor there, there was Vipkir, and there were the little kids, and, and we kind of gave Jordan to Francis, the Ghanaian associate pastor. And Francis started by reminding me that this child is a blessing from God given to Vipkar and I to steward according to his purpose. He asked me some questions. He asked me whether I was willing to be wise in the way that I would actually rear this child of mine. He asked me and Vipkar whether we were willing to put God's principles into practice for this child's life. He asked, and I said, yes. It's a rite of passage that is so important when God claims someone. Psalm 139, before he was born, before he was even in his mother's womb, I knew him. I chose him. I called him. But at the same time, now he belongs to us. And we realize, don't we, with baby dedication, that that's what we do. This is a precious child of God that we will do everything we can to raise according to the principles of God. But let me ask you this, do we do it with our paycheck? Because the same principle applies. Wealth comes from God, but it belongs to us. And so what I wanna do right at the end of this, I'm gonna call the worship team back. They're gonna sing a song in Christ alone because it is true that everything we have, are and own uh, belongs to God. But what I want to do is I basically want to pray. A prayer that we would typically use in a rite of passage for our children. And I just want to swap the words out and make it refer to our finances. And what I would ask us to do, I'd ask us all to, to stand at this point. And I'm going to pray this prayer on my behalf certainly, but hopefully on yours if God has spoken to your heart. And if you're in agreement with us, that your money is claimed by God, but has been given to you, then all I would ask you to do is at the end of this, simply say, amen. And then we're gonna sing that song in Christ alone, just as a reminder as to where everything comes from. Let's go to God in prayer, shall we? Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for these treasured possessions of mine. And as I go through this, just personalize this for yourself. Although you've entrusted them to me as a gift, I know that they belong to you. And like the early church, I dedicate my possessions to you, Lord. I recognize the claim that you make on them and that I am always in your care. Help me as a steward with my weaknesses and my imperfections. Rather than worry, help me to remember that my life is secure in your mighty hands. 
Help me see my spending decisions as spiritual decisions and give me wisdom to handle my money according to your direction. When you speak, may I listen. And Father, may I never stop praying for this gift that you've entrusted to me. Lord, let my commitment to use all that you have given me for the glory of your name cause others to forever testify of your faithfulness. And I pray this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.